Hey, everybody. Welcome to the MWI Podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and you're not getting the normal MWI Podcast intro on this episode because it is not a normal episode. We have a new podcast to introduce. It's called Social Science of War. You'll be able to find it now on the MWI website, and we are thrilled to be involved with it, but it's a production of West Point's Department of Social Sciences. In a few minutes, you'll hear the very first episode. We're playing that for you partly because we have a large audience, something we're grateful for, and we want to help bring attention to this new and exciting podcast series, but also because this first episode addresses a topic that I'm sure our listeners, you all, will be interested in. It's about land warfare and what we can learn about its future from the war in Ukraine. But before we hear that episode, I want to welcome Colonel Heidi Demarest and Major Kyle Atwell to the conversation. Both are from the Department of Social Sciences, and I asked them to join me to talk a little bit about the new podcast, its genesis, and what any of you who subscribe to it can expect. Heidi and Kyle, thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks. We're excited also. Yeah, John, thanks for having us on today. So Heidi, you are currently the acting head of the Department of Social Sciences here at West Point. Kyle, you teach in the department. I am uh, I'm super excited about this podcast. I'm excited to talk to you about it a little bit uh, today. Again, in a few minutes, listeners are going to hear the first episode uh, of the new podcast. But first, you know, the majority of our listeners, the vast majority of our listeners are not at West Point, maybe don't know a lot about the various organizations or specific academic departments uh, that we have here. So Heidi, I wonder if you can sort of maybe introduce the department to listeners just to kind of kick us off. Yes, of course. So the Department of Social Sciences at West Point, which is known as SOCH to our friends and family, is the home of the American politics, international affairs, and economics programs. But SOCH is, to me, much, much more than that. It's an extensive community of people who care very deeply about the world, how it works, and who have an eye toward contributing in a positive way to all the hard questions that confront the Army and really the national security enterprise. And I'm completely biased, but as our dean here at West Point would say, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. But the topics that we study in SOCH, for example, conflict between states or civil military relations or the state of the American labor market and how that affects the recruiting pool, our disciplines are especially relevant to anybody that's serving in the profession of arms. And it's our faculty who are really well equipped to study these problems and to help solve them that we want to share with our audience. Kyle, you're going to be the host for uh, for this initial season anyway. The plan uh, for listeners is to to run this series through the end of the academic year and then and then kick on kick off again in the fall with what will be season two of the podcast. Uh, so it'll sort of correspond to the academic year. But you are the host. Many of our listeners will recognize your name uh, or your voice. You help lead the Irregular Warfare Initiative. Uh, a collaboration between MWI and the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project at Princeton. You're also one of the hosts of the Irregular Warfare podcast that is also, um, you know, sort of part of the the growing MWI podcast network, uh, if you will. That means that uh, I guess you're kind of a podcast veteran by this point. And, you know, the subject matter of this show is obviously very different. But I wonder if, you know, if your experience hosting the IW podcast sort of shapes what you envision uh, for this show, Social Science of War. Yeah, I am the host of this until Colonel Demarest chooses to fire me um, for for making a mistake. Uh, I, I'm very excited about this one. It's it's clearly going to build off of what we've done with the Irregular Warfare podcast uh, and kind of the things we found that are successful there. But the difference is the target audience is, is going to be different. It's going to lead to different types of conversations. And to just give a little a little context, um, I I am a Army practitioner. You know, I served in the Army for 12 years uh, with five deployments overseas in various operational roles. And after that experience, I wanted to come to academia and see if my kind of anecdotal experiences, how they held up against time and space. So what scholars had found in history, if the things I experienced were experienced by other people, um, were these phenomena or just my own experiences. And um, the Army uh, saw fit to send me to grad school where I actually found out a lot of research was extremely relevant to me as a practitioner. It would have been useful for me to know as a platoon leader and then later as a captain in the army. Um, and yet, you know, when you're a busy practitioner, sometimes, you know, reading 15,000 word monographs with regression tables embedded uh, and multisyllabic words is not the easiest thing to do. So the podcast is a great platform to bring important conversations on research to practitioners who may just not have the time to actually um, you know, re- read a stack of books every week in between uh, various meetings that they have at their unit. 
I think that's you know that's a really important point. We talk uh, we talk about the crucial challenge of, of of bridging the gap between practitioner communities and and academia. And I know the target audience that you have in mind for this podcast is the army professional within the army. West Point is really unique. One of its comparative advantages is that you know we have a large faculty here that sort of fuses those practitioner and academic communities. Um, you know, characterized by deep practical and scholarly experience. West Point is one of the only places in the Army that that has that in such depth anyway, and Socia is a great example of it. Heidi, you know, leading the department, you have a very unique perspective on that, and I wonder if you could maybe share a little bit about it. Yeah, you are absolutely right that that is one of the comparative advantages, uh, not just of Soch, but of West Point and the academic program more broadly, is our ability to bridge these communities of interest in academia and practitioners in and around the Army. So our model is to send officers like Kyle to top-tier graduate programs, bring them to West Point to serve on the faculty, share their experiences in both worlds with cadets, and then to take that expertise back out to the Army to better serve the profession. And we've been doing this for a long, long time. And so we have a pretty robust social network out there with people, as I said before, that are just passionate about making the world and the profession a better place. So the guests on this first episode are uh, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, former commander of U.S. Army Europe, and Dr. Rob Person, who teaches international affairs in the social department. Again, practitioner experience and scholarly expertise. Kyle, this is it's it's similar to how the IW podcast is structured, but I think it's a you know it's a particularly defining characteristic of social science of war. This new show. What is it about that model that to you makes it kind of such a compelling way to dive into some pretty complex issues? Yeah, so, so this model of bringing scholars and practitioners together actually benefits both communities. And we find with the Irregular Warfare podcast that we actually have as many uh, policymaker and military practitioner listeners as we do researchers at think tanks and scholars in academia. And, and the reason is this. There's a couple of benefits. Um, first, for the uh, practitioners who are listening, um, it's very valuable to hear uh, the things that have been learned through rigorous study, you know, some of these books and some of these articles, even just, you know, a, a 15,000 word manuscript, there's years and years of research that dig into these topics. It's great to be able to expose that stuff to practitioners by also having another practitioner who's lived that kind of translate what's being said from the scholar to the listener. And so I think there's a lot of value there. Uh, on the flip side, for scholars and researchers who are listening, it is very helpful for them to hear how the things that are discussed in academia, you know, a lot of academic terms kind of uh, and concepts get get distributed throughout um, academic networks to see how they're reflected on by practitioners with who are either in senior positions uh, or even practitioners who have been in more tactical and operational positions, but really lived whatever it is that is being studied in this case. So there's a lot of value there. And there's also kind of a practical value when you bring on senior practitioners sometime like general officers or senior civilian policymakers, when they're paired with an academic, they're actually less likely to stick to their talking points because it's very easy for them to go onto a podcast alone and come up with their script. But when they hear somebody who's researched a topic for years say something, um, it, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of dismiss that. And it actually leads to really engaging, open conversations that the listeners usually find very interesting because you hear new perspectives you may not have expected. There's also kind of one more um, interesting dynamic that plays out, which is it's not just the scholarship and practitioner gap that is often bridged, but also the gap between strategic and tactical. It is um, sometimes difficult for lieutenants, captains, majors, uh, you know, lieutenant colonels to understand why four stars, three stars, and two stars are making certain decisions. We can tease out those decisions and the way that the army is being led the way it's being organized and how it's addressing its biggest challenges by having these conversations and you know opening them up to the to the broader army profession. So why launch a podcast? You know we've been we've been describing the the sort of wealth of combined experience and knowledge uh, within the social faculty. Is the idea that you know this is a great resource for the four thousand cadets at the academy and even more so for you know for the subset of those cadets who have social majors, uh, but that maybe there's value in kind of expanding the audience exposed to uh, the ideas that are, are being talked about in classrooms and being discussed and written about by, uh, by faculty members. And that, you know, a podcast is just a particularly effective way of, of reaching that broader audience. Yeah, I think that's right. If you're a cadet, certainly you're interested in these types of discussions and get them all the time. But if you're a lieutenant about to graduate from Bullock, or if you're a major NCO preparing your battalion to deploy, 
if, or if you're a general officer and you're responsible for the manning, training, equipping, and employing the Army mission, you know, hopefully all those audiences can find something useful here and enjoy spending some time with people who have thought about and have experience solving Army problems at multiple levels and across organizations. Yeah, I think you make a good point, John. The audience goes much beyond West Point, although this is clearly the mothership. Podcasting can be extremely impactful because it's a way to bring important conversations about complex topics to practitioners and scholars, to really busy people in a niche audience. You're not going to get these conversations on mainstream news like the BBC because they're not oriented around the army profession. This is, to my knowledge, probably one of the only podcasts that specifically looks at the army as a profession and what the future of the army looks like. So Kyle, can you give listeners kind of a sneak peek of, uh, of what they're going to hear in this first episode, but more importantly, uh, you know, the other sorts of topics that future episodes are going to explore? Yeah, absolutely. So when I look at kind of the bins of topics we can talk about, I think we can play off the strengths of the social science department, which has really been into international relations, American politics, and economics. They actually provide kind of a good range of uh, topics important to the army to look at. So um, kind of a couple of our episodes are going to look at the future of warfare, uh, which is really kind of a national security, security studies topic. For example, this episode that you're going to listen to today is with retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling and Dr. Rob Person on the lessons learned from Ukraine for the army. Uh, one of our next episodes is with Colonel Candace Frost, who works at um, Cybercom and Major Maggie Smith, uh, who is a scholar here at the Army Cyber Institute and within the Social Department on cyber operations and specifically their implication for Army organization, Army talent, and also how the Army is going to engage in future warfare. Um, and so we can kind of bring those conversations, but we can also look at organizational issues to understand, you know, how a very large and complex organization is organized, how we man, train and equip. Uh, and so to give you an example of an upcoming episode, Lieutenant Colonel Kyle Greenberg uh, recently co-authored a piece published in Harvard's Quarterly Journal of Economics on the impact of joining the Army for social mobility of service members from different races. And he's going to be joined by Command Sergeant Major Faith Alexander at Army Enterprise Marketing Office, who, uh, one, she has extensive experience uh, as an Army um, senior NCO, but she also works with um, an organization right now that's very involved in the Army recruiting challenges. And that's an important topic, I think, for Army professionals to understand is you're seeing in the news the Army is having recruiting challenges. What does that actually mean? How does the Army organize to kind of um, bring in new talent? And kind of the last area, I think, is with American politics. There's a lot of topics there, but we have a, a pretty robust um, research base on civil military relations within the department. And uh, just as an example, Major Mike Robinson is a former social faculty who left very recently back to the operational force. But he has a book based on his dissertation work at Stanford University on civil military relations that we can kind of piece apart for the audience. Well, thank you both, um, not only for joining me today, but for putting you know both institutional and personal energy into uh, into making this podcast happen. These are subjects I'm you know I'm personally really interested in and I trust I trust listeners will find the discussions interesting as well. So thank you both. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, John. And for the listeners, be sure to subscribe to the new podcast. Again, it's called Social Science of War and it's available now on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the Science of War a podcast that brings together scholars and practitioners to better understand land warfare, the Army, and national security strategy. My name is Kyle Atwell. I'm an Army officer currently instructing international affairs at the Social Sciences Department at West Point. And in today's episode, I speak with two experts on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its implications for the future of the Army. Our first guest is retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. Lieutenant General Hurtling concluded his Army career as the Commanding General of United States Army Europe from 2011 to 2012, where his responsibility included deterrence against Russia. Our second guest is Dr. Rob Person, an Associate Professor of International Affairs at West Point. He has published extensively on Russian politics and his research serves as the driver for today's conversation. The Science of War podcast is brought to you through a partnership between the Department of Social Sciences at West Point and the Modern War Institute. Our goal is to provide professional development resources for land warfare scholars and practitioners. We hope you enjoy the conversation with Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling and Dr. Rob Person. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, Dr. Rob Person, welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of The Science of War. 
It's great to be with you, Kyle, and, and thanks so much. This is a, a fascinating topic to talk about, and I look forward to uh, discussing it with Rob. Thanks, Kyle. It's great to be doing this, uh, and certainly an honor to, uh, to be doing it with General Hurtling. So let's start by framing big picture how we got here. Rob, a lot of your research and your book project focuses on Russia's grand strategy. What are Russia's core strategic objectives and how does the invasion of Ukraine align with these objectives? So this is an interesting question, Kyle, because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, after years and years of, of studying this region and, and this problem set, all of a sudden the world finally cares, you know, which, which has, has been uh, a little bit gratifying and reaffirming. But there tends to then be this assumption that something really significant or radical has changed about Russia's behavior in the world, its objectives in the world, just since, since the rest of the world started paying attention um, you know, in the last few months or the last few years. One of the things that I argue in my work on Russian grand strategy is that if you actually look at the record of the last 20 plus years, basically the entire period that Putin has been in power, um, he's actually been quite consistent in pursuing uh, a set of grand strategic objectives. Now, the methods that he has used have evolved. The resources that he has at his disposal have developed. But those core objectives have been remarkably consistent. So what are they? I argue that there's basically five um, that they've been pursuing. Number one, to restore the strength of the Russian state, to restore Russia as a great power in international politics. Number two is to establish a multipolar international system, really sort of a rejection of the unipolar system that emerged at the end of the Cold War. The third grand strategic objective that Russia has been pursuing is to establish this privileged and exclusive Russian sphere of influence in the post-Soviet region, essentially you know, demanding uh, a, a veto at the domestic and foreign policy-making table of Russia's post-Soviet neighbors. The fourth objective is to secure for Russia an influential seat at the table in world politics, particularly in regions uh, where there's not a natural uh, regional hegemon or, or great power. So, you know, think of the Middle East, the Arctic, places like that where Russia wants a say. In order to achieve one through four, there's one really big hurdle standing in front of you, uh, and that's the United States. And so their fifth objective, pursued consistently since the early 2000s, is to contain and constrain the United States and our allies as Russia's top geopolitical adversary. Um, and so, as I said, you know, they have been working towards this for many, many years. But of course, you know, what has gotten our attention is the increasingly hard methods by which they've pursued those using their various instruments of national power. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I got to jump in, uh, Kyle. And what Rob talked about was those five strategic objectives of Mr. Putin as the leader of the Russian state, and they have evolved over the years. I've seen them up close and personal. The opportunity I had to be a part of U.S. Army Europe for a better part of my last 10 years of service, when I wasn't in Iraq, I was in Europe for eight of the 10 years. And it's fascinating having watched the transition of the things that Mr. Putin has done, the methods he has used to meet those five objectives. Two of the ones I'd focus on was one, the veto power that Mr. Putin wanted to put on his neighbors, the former Soviet states and the former Warsaw Pact was prevalent at every turn as those same neighbors were trying to lean more toward the West in a post-Soviet environment. And they were trying to collaborate, coordinate, and cooperate with uh, NATO and the United States. The other interesting thing was the fact that Russia saw themselves as with us as part of a bipolar world, I think, with us, uh, also maybe a tripolar world with China. But it was fascinating because the, the first time as the commander of U.S. Army Europe that I met with my Russian counterpart, and we were allegedly counterparts, he was the ground force commander, he wanted nothing to do with me. I was not someone he considered as his counterpart. His counterpart in the United States was not the commander of U.S. Army Europe. It was the chief of staff of the army or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he didn't even want to deal with the commander of UCOM or the commander of NATO. 
he wanted to go directly to the representative of the United States, even though he didn't quite have the power to elevate himself to that level. So it's fascinating what Rob says. I'd never heard it succinctly put as those five measures of strategy that Mr. Putin uh, has talked about, but, but they're all very true. And so, Rob, you talked about how the outcomes or the objectives have not changed, and yet the means to accomplish them have. Can you talk about over the last 20 years how you've seen the means or approaches that Russia has used to accomplish these objectives have evolved? Yeah. So, you know, Putin comes to power in, in 2000, and, you know, Russia is just starting to recover from this incredibly traumatic post-Soviet transition throughout the 1990s. And his relationship to the United States and to the world is, is very transactional. It's, a, it's sort of a, an approach that I call pragmatic accommodation. He thinks that by making certain concessions to the United States, probably the most significant of which was visible support in the wake of the 9-11 attack, um, that he can get things in exchange that Russia values. Uh, he can get an assurance that NATO will not expand in, into the post-Soviet states. Uh, he can get guarantees that the United States will, will remain a member of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. He believes that he can somehow slow down or, or, or prevent the United States from going to war in Iraq. And he's bitterly disappointed because he fails to secure those objectives. And so from about 2004 for the next few years, it's much more of, of what we refer to in political science as a soft balancing strategy. You know, Russia still doesn't have the resources to, to go toe-to-toe -to -toe against the United States, but they use, you know, economic statecraft, their diplomatic position in the United Nations. They, they use a lot of sharper rhetoric to really start to push back, at least symbolically, against the United States. The real sort of turning point that I mark comes in around 2007, 2008. We see uh, cyber attacks and information warfare in Estonia. Uh, we see the Russian uh, invasion of Georgia leveraging those frozen conflicts for political effect. And so this is the, the period that, that I refer to as, as sort of asymmetric balancing. And this is where Russia's tactics start getting much sharper, but still in the non-kinetic realm, information warfare, political warfare, cyber operations, to really explicitly try to undermine, weaken, destabilize the United States and our allies. And that strategy is fairly successful for them. Uh, I think it comes to sort of a culmination in 2014 with the sort of hybrid invasion uh, and eventual annexation of Crimea, you know, the stoking of political unrest in eastern Ukraine to essentially uh, de facto seize the Donbas region. And then, of course, the most vivid example here on our shores is the intervention in the 2016 presidential election. And so in that respect, I think 2016 is sort of the high watermark for Russian strategic effectiveness using these asymmetric tactics. Uh, ironically, um, and, and I'm sure General Hurtling has, has a lot more direct insights, it's when they start using their hard power that they seem to have, have really overextended themselves. And while they were, you know, successful, I think, in intervening in Syria in 2015, we can see that now in Ukraine 2022, this traditional military hard power intervention uh, has totally backfired on them. Um, and, and they're overextended in a way that I think has surprised everyone. So it's been increasingly assertive and aggressive over 20 years, but not equally effective. You discussed how from 2000 to 2008, there was kind of a shift towards cyber attacks, information warfare. And in my years, this kind of sounds like your asymmetric balancing is really Russia employing hybrid warfare or irregular warfare tactics. And then later they shifted to a more hard power approach seen today. Lieutenant General Hurtling, can you compare the effectiveness of asymmetric political warfare to its current more assertive hard power approach? Yeah, I'll start off by saying I think, I think Rob had it exactly right. It was a shift toward that asymmetric balance, but you're exactly right also. He was doing some things that was testing out those capabilities. The cyber attack inside of Estonia was a relatively small cyber attack against a very small country. And I think he was surprised at how well they reacted to that. The invasion into Georgia in South Ossetia and Abkhazia was 
fascinating for its boldness, but also for its understanding of what Georgia could do to counter because they couldn't do much. And I think it also caught our policymakers and our strategic decision makers at our national level and also at NATO as, uh, with a little bit of a surprise. The cyber attack in Estonia was much more nuanced and much like the attacks into our election could not be proven early on. But Estonia reacted very well to it and hardened their cyber capabilities. In fact, in fact, in my last couple of years in service, they started the, calling themselves Estonia with the emphasis on E on given all the electronic uh, changes they had made in their government and in their services. So, yeah, I think the, the Russians were testing some of their capabilities before going full bore and perhaps reclaiming land as Rob talked about in the final stage of the hard power extension. But all of those other things in the frozen, the areas of the frozen conflicts, and we can't just talk about Georgia, we also have to talk about Nagorno-Karabakh or Transnistria or some of the other places where Russia was interfering and mixing it up with the governments of states he thought were leaning a little bit too far to the West. We're all fascinating to watch because we couldn't do much about it. When I think about, you know, war with Russia, you know, in Eastern Europe, I think about large tank battles. I think about conventional force on force fights, because that's kind of what you're trained as, as, as a young and up and coming army officer. But information warfare and cyber attacks, that doesn't seem to en enter kind of my training, at least not up to this point in my career. At the level that you were operating at, were we kind of prepared to handle these types of attacks? And have we evolved our operations based on the threats we've observed over the last decade? Yeah, I, I actually think NATO has been somewhat nimble in, in addressing some of these factors. They, they immediately began establishing centers of excellence Estonia was the first one and it transferred over to the Czech Republic in terms of a cyber center of excellence. There were counterterrorism centers of excellence all within NATO. Truthfully, though, I, I was a senior commander and had the same thoughts that you just expressed. Man, we weren't trained for this. This is something new. And, and it was you couldn't just lump it all into the category of little green men doing things. At the same time, remember, too, Kyle, as an army, we were focused more toward counterterrorism and counterinsurgencies than we were on conventional warfighting and asymmetric warfare. That's been relatively recent that we've refocused to that. And Russia has had a head start probably of at least 10 years on us in those areas. You know, I'll, I'll just jump in here um, because I think General Hurtling uh, mentioned something earlier that, that's of critical importance, which is that going back to, to 2007 and, and arguably even earlier than that. Eastern Europe and, and the post-Soviet states have really been sort of the laboratory where Russia has developed a lot of these capabilities, these asymmetric political informational capabilities. It's, it's where they've sharpened these weapons. You know, as, as you noted, sir, they, they've sort of been testing these things for a long time. Um, now, they've tested them in a lot of ground that is, that is conducive to their effect. You know, the, the manipulation of ethnic Russian populations in countries like Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, that's something that, that's hard to replicate the farther you get from the Russian homeland. But it's really where, where they have sort of honed these hybrid asymmetric tools. And then, you know, as, as you noted, they've, they've eventually turned those on us, arguably to, to pretty devastating effect, um, you know, with, with the effect that they've had on, on our domestic politics. But I think the important thing to remember is that, frankly, some of the, some of the best experts on these tactics are the ones that have been facing them for the last 10 or 15 years um, in, our, in our NATO allies. And so, you know, the expertise that these countries have. Um, I, I had a chance to, to visit and spend some time at the NATO Strategic Communications Center of Excellence in Riga. You know, incredible expertise and, and direct insight in having been on the receiving end of all of this stuff for so many years. And so I think one of the lessons, you know, hopefully that, that our policymakers, both in civilian government and in the military, take away is that 
you know, yes, we, the United States, may, may be the largest and most powerful and, and sort of the gravitational force within the alliance, um, but we have a lot to learn from our allies who have been, been you know, facing this for so long. And so, you know, really utilizing that, that knowledge and that experience as, as, um, as an asset, I think, is very important. Boy, if I can jump in and just say, you are absolutely right on that. And sometimes the smaller allies have the greatest lessons. You mentioned Riga. You know, the, all three of the Baltic countries, they got it going on. I mean, they be, and it may be because they're so small and that people don't pay much attention to them, but their ability to adapt to scenarios, to know that they are in the crosshairs of Russia, that, that they have a, a diaspora of, of Russian people within their country. And, and so it's something that draws Mr. Putin's attention. And I can name the states that I think or the nations rather, that, that went full bore in terms of transformation early on, primarily because they were afraid of going under the, the Russian heel again. And that's the, all three of the Baltics, Romania, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia. Most of those that, that actually generated some revolts or either internal or external revolts against the Russian people are much more, they're much sounder in terms of their approach than the Germanys, the France, the Belgians, you know, the ones that, oh yeah, well that's, we've been liberated in World War II, we're okay. The ones that have been under the Russian thumb uh, are more apt to understand the implications of this. And I'd carry it one step further too. Uh, during congressional visits that I had, it was exceedingly difficult to make our policymakers understand how much we didn't know about the goings on in Europe and how unless you lived there and unless you generated the trust and the understanding with the 49 other countries, 50 if you include Russia that make up the European landmass, um, you can't just believe that every European country is Germany. Uh, it, 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 you know, there's a whole bunch of different languages and fault lines and dialects that you and cultures that you have to get used to. So as the commander of U.S. Army forces in Europe, how much of your job was kind of managing these alliance dynamics and then not only just thinking about how do we deter Russia with American might, but, you know, how, how, do, how much can we rely on our partners? How do they fill in certain capability gaps? Was that kind of a major part of your job there? Well, the, the Russian part was not, Kyle, and it's a great question. The, you know, I had three major missions as the commander of U.S. Army Europe in 2011 and 12. And it depended on where you viewed it from. If you were viewing it from the Pentagon and the chief of staff of the Army's office, I had one major mission, and that was prepare forces to deploy to other combat zones. If you viewed it from the footprint of my other boss in Brussels, an admiral, my one major mission was theater security cooperation. Neither one of them considered my other mission of contingency planning, which I did several of while I was the commander, uh, and contingency execution, which not a whole lot of people know about, but we deployed forces within Europe to do things like humanitarian assistance, reinforcement of counter missiles in at least three countries, which I won't name, but these were things that I was doing also. So I divvied up with my deputy the responsibilities my deputy's primary responsibility was ensuring the training of forces that were based in Europe that were deploying to either Iraq, Afghanistan, or the, the Balkans, uh, or other places. So he was the chief trainer. I was the chief engager. So my job was to build alliances with the countries we determined were the most viable to build those alliances with. So of the 49 countries in Europe, we really determined about 33 of them were prone to be part of alliances with us in places around the world. So we worked mightily with those countries in different regions of Europe to build relationships and to build a common standard of training and execution through exercises. I want to dig a little bit more into how we prepare for the challenges posed by Russia. But Rob, before we do that, you know, the transition from kind of asymmetric approaches that did not rely on kinetic operations to more kinetic approaches we've seen recently, why do you think that has happened? Like, why is Russia choosing this more aggressive uh, attack? You know, that's, that's a great 
question, Kyle. It's uh, that's the million dollar question, or um, I guess in today's uh, exchange rate, I've I've lost track. You know, that may be the the seventy eight billion ruble question. <laughs> Uh, you know, part of it is is an increasing resource base, and you know, obviously, Russia did have some years of strong economic growth throughout the 2000s, mostly thanks to to rising oil prices. And so, so I think having just having more money to to sort of spend on pursuing this this global ambitious strategy is is part of the explanation. But I also think that part of Russia's motivation in in getting increasingly aggressive and and using these more extreme sort of approaches to secure its interest sort of paradoxically have to do with i think russia recognizing sort of the long-term shift in power and i think russia realized that there were certain things happening particularly in eastern europe that if they did not intervene now they would be unable to prevent in the future. And, and this really goes to Ukraine's sort of geopolitical orientation, which goes back to the heart of, of that strategic objective of the privileged exclusive sphere of influence. You know, time and time again, beginning with the colored revolutions in Ukraine, the Orange Revolution of 2004, 2005, and again in 2014, uh, the Maidan Revolution of Dignity, you know, Ukraine and Ukrainians have shown that they see their future as oriented towards the West. Um, they have demonstrated, you know, with their votes, with their voices, with their feet, and with their lives, that they want a Western-oriented future that's centered on transatlantic uh, security and political and economic structures. And so I think Russia uh, and, and Putin sort of saw that repeatedly um, you know, Ukraine was was drifting away, and if uh, you know all all the previous methods, you know the hybrid tactics, the shenanigans that Putin had tried to use to keep Ukraine within uh, within his orbit, um, I think he finally realized that they were not working, and and so thought that this military intervention would be quick, it would be easy, it would secure the objective, and, and they'd be out of there in a couple of weeks. You know, obviously he miscalculated very badly, but I think fundamentally he probably thought that if he didn't act now, then you know, in a couple more years, it would be too late. The reason I ask it is when we look at preparing the army for future fights, you know, there's this big dichotomy in the type of fights we might see. There's America's competitors engaging in hybrid warfare because they realize a conventional fight just won't work out for them. Uh, and in that case, we need to prepare for, you know, information operations, proxy wars and stuff like that. Or, you know, there's this transition that Russia did where they did engage in kinetic large scale combat operations, not directly with the United States, but nonetheless, it happened. And so kind of, uh, you know, understanding whether this case with Russia and Ukraine is a Russia specific situation or, you know, might this kind of transition also happen with other with other states that, that the United States could end up in conflict with, I think is an important question for understanding the nature or character of future warfare. Yeah, uh, Rob's answer was very good, but I'll put it in a simpler context. Uh, why did they transition? Because they thought they could. They had set the conditions with a variety of things, and I'll point those out. First of all, their experience the first 10 years of Putin's reign that he could do things and get away with it, uh, and there was very little pushback. So his experience was the first thing. The second thing was a formal announcement, in my view, of the U.S. strategy of a pivot toward Asia as it was initially announced. It later became rebalancing toward Asia. That led to his belief that NATO was going by the wayside after the 1990 peace dividends that where we drew our first tranche of forces out, where we went from there used to be close to 300,000 U.S. forces in Europe that eventually went down to about 90,000 at the end of the 1990s after the peace dividends. It was further going down to 30,000, and, and Secretary Rumsfeld had announced that in 2003, where you start getting more and more uh, indicators that the U.S. was turning away from their European partners. The fact that he was exploiting his oil capabilities and knew that he was strangling Europe 
with an extortion tool, and that was the Nord Stream pipelines that he could use to extort European countries. And then finally, a perceived weakness in the United States that it was gener partly generated by him through the election interference in 2016, but also a weakness that he saw in many European countries that were heading toward uh, more autocratic rule, more extremist rule. And we could name those countries that were doing that or were attempting to do that, plus what was happening in the United States with a further divisiveness in our political parties and the view of the world. So if you add all those things up, I think he determined, as Rob said, the time was right. Let's go full bore into this invasion. You know, it's not so much that Russia transitioned its toolkit and sort of, you know, okay, we're done with, with the asymmetric stuff and now we're turning to hard power necessarily. You know, you still have those things in your toolkit. You know, I, 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 so I, I do a little bit of, you know, amateur woodworking um, and years ago, you know, I bought a cheap, um, you know, electric uh, plane uh, from Harbor Freight and Honest to God, I don't think I had ever used it. Maybe I shaved the bottom off of a door once to, to get it to close. But it sat in my closet for, for three years um, until a few weeks ago when, when I decided that I need a, needed to, to make a butcher block. And then, you know, I'll be darned, it was the perfect tool for that. And so, you know, I think this is how Russia operates. I, I suspect this is how, you know, a lot of these countries operate, which is to say that, yes, the, the focus, the balance has shifted. And in the present moment, um, they are using more sort of hard power tools, but they haven't lost what they learned and they haven't lost the capabilities that they used, again, to, to pretty divisive effect, you know, in, in that earlier period. And so, when we continue to think about what does the army need to prepare for, I suspect that we have this tendency to think like, oh, okay, now it's all about, uh, it's all about hard power. Um, it's all about how do we shoot down drones. Um, and so let's put all of our focus and attention on that. If we're not careful, then we're gonna ignore these other elements of, of asymmetric and sharp power and still be vulnerable to them. And so, you know, you kind of have to sort of constantly evolve, but be prepared to meet that wide spectrum of tactics from your adversary. I, I don't know, does, does that make any sense, sir? Or, or is that just the egg-headed academic here? No, it, know, is, it is absolutely here? true. And that's, that's one of the hardest things we do from, from a military perspective of along a spectrum of operations, how are you good at all of them or good enough at most of them and you're able to adapt and adjust. That's the million dollar question or the million ruble question, as you mentioned before. How do you determine what things along the spectrum of conflict that you can do based on what you think your enemies might do? And I guarantee you that you'll sometimes get it wrong. Yeah, I, I just took a couple of really big takeaways from um, the conversation. First is that Rob does some amateur woodworking on the side, which I find to be incredibly surprising and uh, intriguing. Um, the second is, you know, when we talk about the fact that, you know, Russia's not abandoning tools that may or may not have been effective, such as information operations and cyber attacks, it's layering on, you know, essentially th this makes sense in the context of the U.S. Army priorities, which has been to focus on multi-domain operations. And, you know, the, the kind of takeaway from this for me is that the future of warfare is incredibly complex. It's not going to focus on one domain. It's going to focus on multiple domains. And that puts a lot of onus on up and coming commanders to, to essentially juggle a lot of balls. So one question I would pose at you, General Hurtling, is with the benefit of, of, of hindsight, being able to look back on what you did you know, in 2011 to 2012, how did you prepare for the challenge that you observed with Russia at the time? You know, What would you do differently in hindsight? And what do you think were some of the most important things you and your command did that set the West up for success in its current fight with Ukraine? Well, we, we established, I think, command imperatives that contributed to it. But truthfully, I, I would have to be honest and say that we weren't that focused on Russia. Uh, we were focused on other things. And even though we were the European component of the U.S. Army, our priority, as I said before, that was directed toward me and, and I bought into it, wasn't like I was fighting it, was counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, because that was the fight we were in at the time. We were talking about 
conventional fighting again, getting our army, because we knew we were withdrawing from several countries, getting our army back to the basics of conventional war fighting, because we had given that up over the years. And, and I'll cite a story. We, we did an exercise with the 173rd Airborne that it had repeated deployments to Afghanistan, and we wanted to do a conventional war fighting training event at, at Hohenfels with the 173rd. And what we found was that their conventional skills had gone out the window. It was a multinational operation. They were so still focused on counterinsurgencies that they had forgotten some of their conventional warfighting skills. And we saw that in the training event. And, and I'm talking simple things like they parachuted in because all airborne units have to parachute in to start an exercise as part of, I guess somebody made those rules up. So they parachuted in and they thought they were going to assume responsibility for a FOB, a forward operating base. But instead, it's like, no, 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 you're fighting your way in. You got nothing right now. You don't have any of your equipments, any of your maps. You got to take all that stuff with you as part of your parachute drop. They were learning things, getting back to Rob's comment before about learning from your allies. They were learning things from other multinational partners like the Czechs on how to build foxholes and uh, range cards which we had forgotten over the 10 years of fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that continuing polishing of skills is critically important. That doesn't answer your question. I know I'm avoiding your question. How did we prepare for the changes in Russia? We didn't. Uh, we lost sight of it. Uh, we lost the bubble on it. And, and other than establishing rotational troops that could reinforce Europe or the capacity to accept rotational troops, yeah, we, we didn't do much. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, in, in the 12 years that, that I've spent, uh, you know, working in Soch and, and at West Point, there are plenty of differences between sort of the, the military environment and the civilian academic environment that, that I came from prior, but there's also a lot of similarities. And, you know, General Hurtling's comment about things that we didn't look for, things that we didn't focus on, really resonates uh, with me and, and, and some of my own personal experience. About 20 years ago, so the, um, gosh, it would have been the spring of 2003, you know, I was going into graduate school, looking at different grad programs, and I had a really well-meaning advisor tell me, and this is a verbatim quote, listen, if you want a job in political science, don't study Russia. <laughs> Nobody cares about Russia anymore. They're finished. And, you know, obviously I ignored that advice and, and I'm glad that I did. But it really was emblematic of, of what General Hurtling was, was just talking about. You know, everybody was moving toward, you know, it was post 9-11. All the excitement, all of the funding, uh, all of the focus, all of the job lines are shifting towards terrorism, counterterrorism, political Islam, extremism, uh, you know, all of these things. And that really accelerated and exacerbated what was already a gap in, in Eurasian area expertise. Um, you know, that gap had started with the end of the Cold War, where a lot of folks thought, okay, Soviet Union is existential threat, you know, they're gone. Um, and so a lot of resources drift, drifted out of Russian studies. And then sort of the post 9-11 effect really exacerbated that. Um, and so the result is that, you know, just as the military wasn't thinking and, and paying attention to a lot of this stuff, uh, the same could be said for, for a lot of, you know, civilian academia and, and sort of policy circles. We don't know what the threats, the challenges, or the hot spots 10, 20, 30 years from now will be. I, we have some ideas and we can make some predictions, but um, you know, if we're not disciplined in investing in sort of expertise you know, globally and across different phenomena and, and really investing in sort of the kind of critical thinking that, that will help future army officers sort of pivot and understand new environments, uh, then we're going to be behind the curve every time. Um, and, and, and that's a painful lesson that we encounter time and time again. Haven't quite learned it yet, but, you know, there's always next time. You know, if, if I could just add to that, because it's great. Uh, I, I got a good piece of advice from a mentor one time. I won't say who it is because you'll know why in just a second. As I was going into combat as a division commander, he said, wake up every day and determine what's going to bite me in the ass today that I'm not thinking about. Now, that's a very tactical approach to combat operations. And 
if I were smarter, Kyle, back when I was a commander of U.S. Army Europe, I probably would have been thinking every day when I woke up, what's going to bite me in the ass today? And it could be a resurgent Russia, as opposed to some of the other things we're talking about. But Rob is exactly right. We shift our focus. As military officers, one of the things we have to learn is really opening the aperture and seeing across a very wide area of potential challenges. And we tend not to do that. Well, human nature is tending not to do that. You like to run toward the most exciting, most sexy thing and be a part of it. But sometimes if you're really a great strategic leader, you open it up and you have to see across the board. Rob, I'd like to tackle one more topic uh, really briefly because I'm aware of time. Uh, You and another professor in the social sciences department, Major Katie Hedgecock, published a policy brief that essentially argued through bargaining theory, which is, you know, a social science uh, theory, that there's little space for a bargaining outcome as things stand between Russia and Ukraine. Can you explain briefly your core arguments and essentially illuminate how social science research might indicate, you know, where this conflict is heading in the future? Sure. So uh, this is an easy one. We actually just taught this lesson in uh, in the intro to IR course at, at West Point, which honestly, um, you know, SS 307 SOCH, it's, it's where most of my good ideas come from. You know, the, the idea is that two states are in conflict over something. Um, it, it could be a, a patch of land, it could be a, a policy, but you know, rationally speaking, everyone would be better off if they could avoid the cost of fighting and come to a negotiated solution. You know, if you could arrive at sort of the identical division of that resource, the identical settlement that you would through warfare, but just skip all the messy and costly fighting, everyone would be better off. Um, And so why doesn't that happen? Uh, It's because, and this has been well known to officers, you know, going back at at least as far as Clausewitz and and I'm sure much earlier, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of uncertainty in war. And critically, you know, according to these bargaining theories, they basically argue that the fundamental disagreement or or the fundamental uncertainty is a disagreement over the likely outcome of combat. You know, if we go toe to toe, head to head, uh, both sides think that they can prevail, at least initially. And, you know, I, if Russia didn't think that it could win this war, it wouldn't have started it. If Ukraine didn't think that it could win this war, you know, they would have thrown their arms up and, and surrendered and, and sued for a, a peace deal on the first day. But both sides think that they got a shot at winning. And the reason they disagree is because you have pretty incomplete information about your adversary's capabilities and their resolve. And incidentally, I always remind my students, you, you also may have bad information about your own capabilities and resolve, and, and we've certainly seen that in the Russian case. But that uncertainty then begins to be resolved when they start fighting. That's when you actually start to learn you know, which side really cares about this fight and just how capable are each side's armies. And, and obviously it goes well beyond just counting, okay, how many tanks you know, does Ukraine have versus how many tanks does, does Russia have and how many missiles and how many men. And so that process sort of begins to real, reveal information. And, and in a theoretical sense, if the fighting or the bargaining, as it were, goes on long enough, expectations can converge until both sides recognize how this battle is going to end, how this war is going to end. Um, you know, when I, I use the example of a bar fight when I teach this lesson, you know, if, if I've gone five rounds um, and, you know, I've ended up sort of bloody in the fo- in, on the floor for the last three rounds, I kind of know that if I get up again and take a swing at that guy, it's just going to end up the same. And so that's the point at which I should be willing to settle for peace. The problem is that up to this point, or the reality, I should say, up to this point, Uh, Both Russia and Ukraine still believe that they have a reasonable shot at winning this conflict. Um, They have not come to an agreement yet. Neither side feels that they are decisively defeated or, or approaching that. And so this is why, you know, Major Hedgecock and I, my co-author, argued that all of this talk about diplomatic off-ramps, uh, sort of seeking um, negotiating space and possibly pressuring Ukraine to seek a negotiated settlement. 
all of it is premature and irrelevant. Um, they still have fight left in them, and, and obviously they're doing quite well, but you know, the guy who started this war, um, the guy on whose shoulders this bloody, costly conflict rests, he unfortunately also thinks that he can still win this war. And so, you know, unfortunately, while it's really reassuring to see all of the successes and achievements that Ukraine has, has made in the last several weeks, um, you know, the fact of the matter is my prediction, uh, and, and I'd be curious to hear General Hurtling's take on, on all of this, my prediction is that, that this is still going to be a very long and painful, drawn-out war um, that's, that's not close to being resolved. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I'm not sure the length of it, but we're nowhere close to resolving it right now. You know, it's interesting what you said, Rob, what immediately came to mind is on the 24th of February, I was asked, as both of you know, I do some military anal analysis for CNN, and I was on air when the war started. And I said on the 24th of February that Ukraine was going to persevere. And I was immediately pilloried by everybody else that was on air. How could, how could you say that? You're a military guy. You got to know that Russia is much stronger. And I reverted back to a very simple formula. And I'm not a math guy, by the way, but I reverted back to a very simple formula I learned early on in my general officer years is that, that power is equal to will times resources. And what I said was, based on my interaction with both the Ukrainian and the Russian army, the Ukrainian army has a much greater sense of will, not only in their military, but in their political leadership, and in the support of their governed, the, the citizens. Russia may outnumber them in terms of tanks and equipment and all sorts of other things, but they don't know how to use them, number one. They're a very ill-trained army with bad leadership, bad political leadership, a non-support of most of the population for an illegal war, and it will increasingly deteriorate. So if you measure those two factors of will versus resources, as Ukraine's resources grow based on donations from the West, and as their capability in terms of executing operations improve, their will has always, has always been strong. And even under the deluge of rockets and drones and the killing of their citizens through war crimes, their will is growing even stronger to persevere. So my feeling is that Ukraine is still has the upper hand unless Mr. Putin, as you say, Robin, I think it's an interesting factor. Both sides believe they can win. The difference is the both sides on one side, it's all of Ukraine. On the other side, it's just one man who still believes he can win. You know, interesting, if you look at the incomplete information reason for why they would go to war, you know, Robin, Major Hedcock, article emphasized both capabilities and willpower. And, you know, capabilities, even if you could completely measure them accurately, which is, you know, dubious because states hide information about their capabilities right. or exaggerate them, you really, it would be really hard to quantify willpower um, as a social scientist or as a government. So there will almost always be incomplete information uh, on willpower. But, you know, I'd, I'd jump in, Kyle, and say that, um, and, and this is a little pitch for my own profession, this isn't necessarily surprising to those of us that, that have studied nationalism, you know, which is this fascinating phenomenon that really has only existed for the last couple of centuries, few centuries, you know, prior to the 18th century, 19th century, you know, you ask someone, who are you, where are you from? You, you know, it's, it's a peasant and they identify very, very locally. But this idea that, that there's some sort of broader community that binds us together, the national community, this idea that there's this thing called the nation and there's people that I'm willing to fight and die for in the name of this abstract idea. It's an extraordinarily powerful force as, as we know. And you know, we also know that warfare can forge nations, can forge national identities and be incredibly galvanizing and, you know, there's, there's a lot of work in social science that somewhat paradoxically argues that warfare can actually build strong states. And so I, I think we are seeing both of those processes before our eyes that, uh, you know, the Ukrainian nation, which already existed and already had a deep sense of themselves, of course, has been rallied to this resistance, has strengthened 
uh, as General Hurtling described. Um, and the Ukrainian state itself and the Ukrainian military uh, is being forged um, you know, into a much stronger uh, entity at this point. Uh, and so again, you know, this, is, this is the history of, of external invaders meeting face to face with, with highly motivated, highly concentrated populations. And, and so it shouldn't have come as a surprise you know, Mr. Putin's blind spot is is that he simply doesn't understand this um, because yeah. it, in, a lot of it could have been predicted. They were not going to be met with open arms on the road to Kiev. And, and if if I can add one more thing, and I, I I'm in violent agreement with you, Rob. Uh, I, I got to say too that what I learned uh, in my recent doctoral studies, uh, and I know I'm an old guy. You're saying, what are you getting a doctorate for? But in my recent doctoral studies, I was told, whatever you do, don't do a mixed method research. And I violated everything that I was told not to do and did a mixed method research. And I found that my quantitative analysis was highly effective by some of the information I received from my qualitative uh, factors. So that's what we're talking about here. And I know social scientists really like to focus on the quantitative, but I would say that what we're talking about here is how do the words, how do the emotions, how does the will affect any kind of overpowering force? And, you know, I think Russia is learning that right now. And truthfully, I think we may have learned it as well in Afghanistan. So that's another lesson from the military that the force sometimes can be very powerful and still not achieve their strategic and operational objectives. Yeah. So in this conversation, we we started by outlining the strategic objectives of Russia, which which we argue have been consistent. However, the means to achieve them have evolved. Uh, and also we've looked at how the U.S. military has either prepared or in some cases not prepared for the challenge posed by Russia. And finally looked at the at the prospects for the conflict ending, given what we know about social science and, and the bargaining model of war. I'd like to give you both the opportunity to close out the conversation by asking you, what are the biggest takeaways for army professionals and students of land warfare from both the Russian war in Ukraine and its activities leading up to Ukraine? Uh, Rob, we'll start with you and then General Hurtling allow you to close out. Yeah, well, so so I kind of already spent my ammunition um, by telling the story about uh, don't study Russia, um, <laughs> which is to say that, you know, one lesson is, uh, listen, we, we, um, we have to be looking well over the horizon and ensuring that we're developing the expertise necessary to, to meet those threats. The, the other lesson that I take as a total armchair military analyst, um, and, and this is not my area, this you, you Kyle, and of course you, sir, um, you are the real experts, but it, it occurs to me, having just watched the last few months, that uh, things like training and logistics and equipment maintenance are underappreciated, um, but really damn critical to having an effective military. I can't imagine that uh, having all of your equipment break down, not even in battle, but on the road to the battle, is not really a good model for an effective fighting force. Um, so I'm sure General Hurtling has much more nuanced and, and deeper insights. Um, into lessons learned, but but again, as an amateur, it's um, <laughs> it's like man, the the Russians have been doing something wrong for for the last you know decade or so. But that's really important for scholarship because there's a whole literature on the three to one ratio, defense, offense. And, you know, when we're measuring Russian and U.S. forces and allied forces, you know, we need to look at this ratio. But that ratio, which is very quantitative in nature, doesn't look at the qualitative logistics backbone behind those forces. It just says, oh, one Russian tank must equal one, you know, NATO tank. Uh, and, you know, I actually remember going in like about a month before the invasion, we had a, a discussion within the social department on exactly this topic. And, and it was brought up, hey, like one tank may not equal one tank when you consider logistics. And that's that's a deeper level of analysis that a lot of military practitioners get. But I think scholars could also incorporate into their analysis. Yeah, it, it, that's a great point, Kyle. And I'll follow up first by talking about that. One tank does not equal one tank, because when you're talking about just logistics, first of all, the type of tank determines the type of logistics, spare parts, fuel. Oh, by the way, what about a trained crew? Oh, by the way, what about the leadership that forces the individuals to get out and tighten the torsion bars and, and tighten the lug nuts? And oh, by the way, what about that tank being part of a combined arms team? And oh, by the way, what about that tank 
that not only can't act as an individual tank, but not part of a combined arms team, what happens when the will of the soldier inside the tank doesn't want to fight? So you're decrementing that one tank, of which I think Russia had 3,000 of them or so to start this operation, into something that you're capable to, to bite a piece of the elephant. But I'm going to go back to your question now. Uh, having been the commander of the ops group at the National Training Center and the CG at the 7th Army Multinational Training Center in Europe, you could take all of the lessons that are being learned right now on the battlefield and make up about a million hours of AAR after action review on what was done wrong and how the force, the Russian force would need to fix it. You could probably do a lesser degree on the Ukrainian side because they certainly have made some mistakes too from one of the battlefield operation systems. You can talk about command and control, you can talk about logistics, combined arms operations, use of engineers, use of aircraft, the, the uh, joint force uh, accommodation, the, the principles of war. I mean, everything that military professionals study could apply to mistakes that Russia has made in this war. However, comma, what I would say is the most important thing that we're going to learn out of this war is how the element of leadership at the tactical, operational, and strategic level makes the biggest difference. If your leadership is untrained at the tactical level and doesn't know how to set standards and ensure that various elements of your force are exercised in the correct way, you're going to lose. If your operational level leaders, the generals and the senior colonels, don't know how to combine battles for a successful campaign as part of an operation that meets some kind of strategic goal, and they don't understand the requirements of generalship, they're going to lose war. If you have a political leadership that is corrupt and grifting and is only interested in their own power as opposed to the survival of the nation writ large or the correct functioning of government or the understanding that they have to secure the national values, you're going to lose the war. So leadership in all three of those letters, levels, from the corporal at the tactical level to the president at the senior level, has to be functioning correctly. So in my view, the failures of one side and the successes of the other are all contributed to the ability to lead the force and to lead the nation. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today for this inaugural episode of the Science of War podcast. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks again for listening to the Science of War podcast. This podcast was brought to you through a partnership between the Department of Social Sciences at West Point and the Modern War Institute. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing, leave a positive rating and comment, and most importantly, please share the Science of War with other land warfare and Army professionals. One final note, what you heard in this episode does not represent the views of West Point or any agency of the U.S. government. Thank you again, and we will see you next time.